Uh, the kids were really excited. Uh, Mum and Dad had just said they were going to go to Aussie World next weekend. Uh, the kids were really excited and it showed throughout the week. Even when Jane brought her report card home and it wasn't quite what it should have been, and I'm not talking so much about the marks, they weren't great, but it was the comments. Her teacher said Jane didn't seem to be putting in her best effort. Jane didn't feel so great about her parents seeing that report card, but she put it, pushed it to the back of her mind because of the promise. Aussie world on the weekend. Saturday came around and the kids were all up at the crack of dawn Uh, But not mum and dad, they were sleeping in. When dad eventually got up, the kids were excited, though confused. When are we going? When are we going? Dad responded, going where? With the way you've been behaving this week and after seeing that report card, of course we're not going anywhere. The kids' hearts dropped. But you said, you promised... What had been a promise turned out to be conditional. In the part of the Bible we're looking at this morning, this is the issue. Does God really keep his promises? Does God change his mind? What was a promise doesn't become conditional. We're reading this letter written by Paul to believers living in Galatia. He's writing because although they received the gospel, they started the Christian life trusting in Jesus for their salvation, some false teachers have come to Galatia. Uh, These false teachers have come saying, faith in Christ isn't enough. God requires more from you. You thought God made a promise. Nuh-uh. There are conditions you've got to keep. You've got to do everything in the law of Moses. Last week, in the first half of chapter 3, we went back to Abraham. We were reminded that God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham believed God's promise and his faith was credited as righteousness. He was right with God, not by what he did, but by trusting in what God would do. Not by what he did, but trusting what God would do. But the false teacher was saying, no, that's not the case. Being right with God doesn't come through faith, but by what you do. When you boil it down, they were saying, God's promise to Abraham doesn't really matter. By adding law-keeping to the gospel, they were saying, God didn't really mean some of what he promised. And so this dilemma that was happening in Galatia raises two questions for us. The first is, will God keep his promises? If the false law teachers are right, can God actually be trusted? If he starts off with a promise but it becomes conditional, can we really trust God? Uh, Second, if we can see that God is trustworthy, well then hang on, we've got another problem. Why did God give the law? If God started By making promises, why did he add the law? So two questions. Can God be trusted? What's the point of the Old Testament law? They're the questions we're looking at today. 
the answer to the first question, can God be trusted? Paul just comes right out the gate and says, yes. He says, look, when humans make an agreement, it can't be broken, even more so with God. So have a look in your Bible, Galatians 3.15. So this is verse 15. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case, as in the case with God and Abraham. All right, what's a covenant? It's not a word that's used much outside the Bible. A covenant is a serious promise, an agreement. It's kind of like a contract. So the picture in verse 15 works a bit like this. If you've signed a contract to buy a house and the contract goes unconditional, you can't turn around a couple of days later and say, oh, sorry, changed our mind, We why don't we just pay you $100,000 less? That's, that's fair enough, isn't it? No, you can't do that. The contract's signed. Now, covenants aren't exactly the same as contracts, but for this passage, the difference doesn't matter. The point is, God made a covenant, a contract. He made a promise to Abraham and God can't and won't change it. We heard part of the promise in our Old Testament reading this morning. A promise to make Abraham a great nation. To bless him and bless the whole world through him. And to give Abraham's offspring a land. That's the promise, the the covenant. God keeps fleshing out this covenant, explaining more of the details to Abraham as time goes on. In Genesis 15, God promises, uh, God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Uh, That's the same promise as Genesis 12. He's just filled in more details here in chapter 15. That's the promise. That's the covenant. How Paul interprets this promise in Galatians 3.16 is a bit interesting, isn't it? He picks up on a nuance we might miss. Because the picture God gives Abraham is the uncountable number of stars. His offspring, his descendants will be like that. But there's a little nuance in what God says. Because the word offspring can either refer to one or to many. No matter how many children you have, if you've got one child, that child is your offspring. If you've got ten children, they're your offspring. Offspring is one of those words that's both singular and plural. You don't say, oh, look at my offsprings. That's not a real word in English. It's the same in Hebrew and in Greek. It's a word like sheep or fish. Okay, so why is this matter? It's because God's promise to Abraham is about one. It's about Jesus. It's about the singular, the one offspring. Verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Uh, Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Seed, offspring are two different ways to translate the same word. Like offspring, seed can either be singular or plural. You can either have a seed or a bag of seed. Though in English, you can also say you have a bag full of seeds. 
And I think that's why the NIV uses the word seed when it translates Galatian and Galatians and offspring when it translates Genesis because it didn't want to have a big red squiggly underline when it says the word offsprings because it's not a word. Okay, so that's your English lesson for today. What's going on? Isn't the promise in Genesis, the promise God made to Abraham, isn't it about an uncountable number, like a really, really big number, more than 10, like a huge number? Why does Paul say no? No, God's promise is about one seed, and that is Christ. I'm not going to tell you yet. We're going to get to that answer, answer that question at the end. Because what we're going to see when we get to the end of this passage, when it all comes together, is by noticing this little nuance of the word offspring, the word seed, and the way that works in both the ancient languages of the original Bible and also in English, we get to see the beauty of what Jesus has done. So we're going to come back to this question. But right now, the point that Paul is making, the point that the promise is about God and his seed, or Abraham and his seed, the point of the promise being directly about Jesus, the point Paul is making is that the law, which was given hundreds of years after Abraham was around, the law doesn't change the promise because the promise was always about the one seed, Jesus. He hasn't changed his mind. When God makes a promise, when God makes a covenant, he doesn't change his mind. So verse 17, what I mean is this. And when Paul says that, you go, fantastic, Paul. I was a bit worried about what you're meaning. Tell me what you mean. This is it. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. All right, so God's saying this inheritance, it's all about the promise. It's not to do with the law. The law is made after the promise. So therefore, the promise, whatever the promise is about, it doesn't change. A little bit of a quick aside, though. Where does Paul get 430 years from? Isn't that just the time Israel spent in Egypt? Isn't it actually a bit longer from the time of Abraham, Genesis 12, and God making a covenant with Abraham, and then God giving the law through Moses at Sinai? It's longer than 430 years. Why does Paul say 430 years? What I reckon is going on is 430 years is a number picked up in uh, Exodus 12, and I think Paul might be saying it's not 430 years from Abraham to Moses, But it's 430 years between when the promise was finally repeated to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, in Genesis 35, and when the law was given to Moses. Bit of an aside, don't stress over the detail. The point is, God had made a promise. He'd ratified a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was hundreds of years later When the law was given and when God makes a covenant, it's made. God doesn't change his mind. The initial unconditional promise can't, hundreds of years later, it can't suddenly become something that's conditional on obeying the law. When you promise a trip to the theme park, that's a promise. You can't later say, oh, hang on, it was always conditional on your report card. All right, so God is keeping his promise. 
why did he give the law? Because it certainly looks like God's changed his mind. If God credits faith as righteousness, if God made a covenant that's unbreakable, unchangeable, then why did he give a law that isn't about promises and faith, but about what Israel had to do? And the answer is about God's purpose. God's purpose in the promise and God's purpose in the law. The answer is the law was never meant to make people right with God. In fact, the law was given to show Israel and show the world how deeply sinful we are and how much we need what God has promised. Verse 19, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God didn't give the law to Moses to make Israel righteous. God didn't command Israel to obey the Ten Commandments and all the other laws in Exodus and Leviticus. He didn't give them the law so they'd be right with him by what they did. That wasn't the purpose of the law. And how do we know this? Well, we know it because of history and experience. If the point of the law was to give Israel life and to make the Israelites righteous, then it was an utter failure. The whole story of Israel is disobedience and breaking the law. And if God's purpose in giving the law was righteousness and life, then God is a failure. But God doesn't fail. The law did exactly what it was meant to do. We also know the law wasn't meant to give life because if the law was meant to give life, why did God make a promise to Abraham? God wouldn't have made a promise about an offspring. If the law was meant to give life, God the Son, the promised offspring, he wouldn't have come. He wouldn't have taken on our humanity and suffered and died on a cross. The law was never designed, never purposed to give life or righteousness or make us right with, make Israel right with God. Alright, so why the law? If that's not its purpose, what is its purpose? Well, verse 19, the law was given because of transgressions. It wasn't given to restrain sin and make righteous. It wasn't given to restrain sin, but to reveal sin. How does the law reveal sin? Well, for the people of Israel, once they'd been given the law, every time they sinned by breaking the law, they had a law to look at to see, oh, I've sinned. You might think, actually, I'm pretty good at drawing straight lines freehand until you put your ruler up against it and you realise that's the straight line. When when the Israelites were corrupt and paid, paid bribes, they were now breaking the law. When they were adulterous and cheated on their spouse, they were now breaking the law. When they were selfish and didn't provide for refugees or homeless people, they were now breaking God's law. 
The law revealed their sinful hearts. The law revealed they were not loving God or their neighbour. Now, this purpose of the law revealing sin sounds sounds pretty dark, doesn't it? Here's God just giving you something just to keep showing you again and again how you haven't lived up to his standards. Why would God give a law that's impossible to be kept? It's like asking a a toddler who can't even talk, expecting a toddler to do rocket science. Why would God give a law that's impossible to keep? It wasn't to make Israel give up in despair. It was to make them despair, but out of their despair, out of the realisation of the depth of their sin and their inability to, to live God's way, out of that to look to Christ, to trust in the promises of God alone for righteousness and life. Verse 23, before the coming of this faith, we, we Jews, were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Uh, The word translated guardian, in other translations it's a teacher or a schoolmaster. The word is used to describe someone a bit like a like a boarding house supervisor. If you go to boarding school, there's going to be people who work in the boarding house. Uh, they're not teachers. They won't be teaching you English or maths. Their job is to make sure, a bit like, I suppose, parents, but they're not parents, they're just boarding house supervisors. Their job is to make sure you get up in the morning, you have your breakfast and you make it to class on time. Their job is to lead you to the classroom, to lead you to the goal of why you're living in the boarding house, which is to be taught. That's the picture of the law's role. It's a guardian. Its job was to lead Israel to Christ, to keep pointing out Israel's sin and her need for a saviour. The law revealed their sin as they failed to do what the law said. Through the sacrifices that were repeated again and again, that reveals the the need for a once-for-all sacrifice that can actually cleanse and actually truly atone for sin. The law as a way of life was only ever meant to be temporary. Um, A guardian, a boarding house master, until Christ came, until the promised one came. All right, so remember the question. The question is, does the law, which was given 430 years after the promise, does the law contradict that which was promised? And the answer is no. No, the the law was never purposed to give life. The answer is no, because God has not and will not change his covenant. The promise was always about offspring, an offspring, which as we saw in verse 16, an offspring who is both... One and is more than all the stars in the sky. Now, that sounds really weird. And that's the big question we hit at the beginning. How can the promise to have offspring more than the stars in the sky actually really be about the one, 
the singular offspring? How can the one also be uncountable? In this little point, in this little nuance of language, we get to the heart of the gospel. So listen up. It's because in Christ, all who trust in Jesus, all who receive God's promises, all are one. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, up until verse 26, everything we've heard so far this morning, we've been hearing about Israel's backstory. The we in those verses means we Jews, we Israelites. Verse 23, we Jews were held in custody under the law. Verse 25, we Jews are no longer under a guardian. So far, everything we've seen today has been about the backstory of Israel. But here, do you notice verse 26, there's a big change. It now says, you, you are children of God through faith. You have been baptized and are clothed with Christ. You belong to Christ. You are Abraham's seed or offspring. Who's the you? Well, initially, the you is you believers in in Galatia. Uh, You refers to the churches of Galatia, churches that uh, consist of both Jewish believers and Gentile believers. But now when we read it, we're the you. All of us. This is us. All who are trusting in Jesus and are baptised into him. Now, this little distinction between the we and the you matters. It matters because if you are a Gentile, you've never been under the law. The law was given through Moses to Israel. It was not given to the world. But if you're trusting in Jesus, you're still not under the law. Because the law was a guardian, temporary until Christ. In Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile are under the law. The law's role is complete, it's fulfilled. The offspring, Christ, is here. And in Christ, we are all one. So how does that work? How can this promise be about the seed to the one offspring yet also be more than the stars in the sky? Well, it's because there are loads of people throughout history and around the world, loads of people who trust in Jesus. Abraham's offspring are more than the stars in the sky, but the promise is about the offspring. It's about Christ. How do those two facts come together? This is the thing I've been thinking of this week. I reckon it's a bit like light shining through a prism. If you shine a single beam of light through a prism, it hits the prism and it splits into many. God's covenant is about Jesus. It's fulfilled and kept in Jesus. That's the one. But salvation is in Christ and everyone who believes in Christ, everyone who is included in Christ, we all belong to Christ. We are all in Christ. Yes, it's about the one, but in the one is actually many. We are united to Jesus by his spirit. 
And so while God's promise is fulfilled in the one Lord Jesus, if God's promise was always about the coming of Christ, which explains why we need the, why Israel needed the law to reveal their sin and their desperate need for the one who was to come, at the same time, countless believers are included in Christ. And this means, who are the children of Abraham? Well, they're not the physical descendants, but the spiritual. Being a child of Abraham is about DNA. Sorry, it's not about DNA. It's about faith. And this means anyone who trusts in Jesus is an heir of the promises of God. In the ancient world, the firstborn son got the inheritance. He got the house and the farm and the rest of the children just have to make do. Jesus is the heir. He is the one offspring. He is the heir of Abraham's promise. The heir isn't Isaac. The heir is Christ. And so if you are included in Christ, you are an heir. No, no, you are the heir. Is there one heir or one firstborn? Or is there more heirs than the stars in the sky? Paul's answer is yes. Every believer will receive all the inheritance because all believers are included in Christ. The whole inheritance is yours. The promise of righteousness through faith, the promise of freedom and forgiveness, the promise of an eternal relationship with God. And because the promise is by faith, it's the same whether you're Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. This is really important because in the ancient world, none of us would get any inheritance from God. In the ancient world, daughters didn't inherit. Slaves didn't inherit. Gentiles definitely get nothing from God. The only one who should get anything from God is the firstborn son. But in the gospel... Believers are included in Christ, the firstborn son. And this means there's no difference. No difference between Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Anyone who believes in Jesus gets a full share of God's promises. There are no second-class Christians. No second-class Christians. And this is really good news. Because it means we can trust God. We can trust every promise he makes. There's no chance that like the kids who found out that what they thought was a promise, oh, all I've got to do is trust the promise. No, actually, all you've got to do is follow all these rules and regulations and, and behave a certain way and achieve certain goals. If that's what God was like, we would have no chance. But there is no chance that after trusting God that he's going to change his mind and say, oh, look, it was actually always about the law. You've got to work for it. If you are trusting in Jesus, you can be 100% sure you are right with God. God's not going to change the plan, change the requirements. He's not going to go back on his promises. So come to Jesus. Trust God's promises, because they are for all who are found in Christ. Let's pray. 
Father God, we praise you for your faithfulness. Thank you that your promises are always promises, that you don't change your mind or break your promises. Help us to trust you, to trust in Christ. Thank you that in Christ all are one, that believers, no matter our ethnicity, our gender, our economic status, that all believers are included in Christ and share in his inheritance the blessing of forgiveness, righteousness and eternal life. Strengthen us to keep holding fast to your faithfulness in Jesus. Amen.